Hello and welcome to the next episode of the podcast on negotiation. And our today's episode uh, will be with the one and only Gary Nessner, uh, who, has, uh, who is a former chief of the FBI crisis unit, uh, has 30 years of uh, negotiation experience in the most difficult situations, uh, who is a prolific author, best-selling author, uh, who has a lot of experience in negotiating and teaching others how to negotiate better. Gary, welcome to our show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you, Remy. It's a pleasure to be with you today. <laughs> Thank you so much for accepting our invitation, Gary. And let's uh, let's jump right on to your into your um, the depth of your uh, FBI career. And um, my first question is sort of looking back at what uh, what you've achieved. Uh, uh, what was your greatest challenge in the 30 years um, of your field crisis negotiations? Well, I think generally speaking, uh, the biggest challenge that not only I, but everyone in uh, the negotiation profession has had uh, more historically, but to some extent even today, is the internal battle within our law enforcement agencies to, um, to have the influence with decision makers to allow us to use our craft to try to resolve situations so we can avoid the use of force, avoid placing police officers in dangerous situations. Um, you know, law enforcement agencies are sort of para, excuse me, I'm trouble, paramilitary organizations. So they're used to uh, giving commands and having people comply. And when people don't, um, it really irritates us and we, get angry and sometimes uh, decision makers aren't able to maintain self-control sufficiently and they'll lose their patience and want to take action to force someone to comply, surrender, uh, apprehend them, whatever is required. And sometimes, uh, certainly in the past, uh, they didn't always give negotiators the, the full and complete support we needed to try to uh, uh, use our skill sets to avoid violence. That uh, that equation has changed. Uh, the public demands the police to be more uh, thoughtful and um, uh, more, more uh, uh, op open to peaceful resolution, be more patient. Um, and with that, police actions are scrutinized to a greater extent than ever. And the public, the press, certainly uh, in the United States and certainly around the world, questions operations that don't end the way that the police would like and they say well why did you go in why didn't you negotiate why didn't you uh, open up a dialogue whatever it might be so decision makers and law enforcement have to be very aware of that but that was probably the biggest struggle is to i guess for a lack of putting it another way is gaining the respect um as as a profession within law enforcement to uh to be able to do what we felt we needed to do Thank you so much, so much, Gary, for uh, for this perspective. Um, how about uh, how about your greatest achievements as in terms of negotiation, uh, in terms of negotiations that you've witnessed, uh, that you've coordinated, uh, uh, that you've guided? Uh, um, which one of those comes to your mind when you think, look back at the uh, at the thirty years of uh, of your of your active field career um, <clears throat> as as the one that um, maybe you underestimated your um, um your chances of success or uh, 
and the ones when you had super difficult, you thought you had super difficult negotiation partner on the other side and you still managed to succeed? Fortunately, most of the um, incidents we responded to or assisted police um, ended successfully. I think the success rate uh, in negotiations is, is, is over 90%. And uh, there's very few things in law enforcement or, or life for that uh, matter that have such a high percentage of success which shows you the the positive nature of using calm, controlled communication skills to resolve conflict. Um, you know, the, the biggest event in my career was obviously the 1993 Waco event, which I tell people is both the best and worst thing I was involved in. Uh, it was worse in that is the worst thing in that it was a terrible, terrible tragedy at the end and over 70 people died. Um, when the Davidians started a fire based on the FBI putting in tear gas, I was gone at that time, but it was also the thing I was most proud of because under the most challenging of circumstances, uh, we were able, my negotiation team uh, and I, to get out 35 people, including 21 children. You know, and, and then you look at the, the nature of the difficulty, we had on one side a, a religious zealot who was a, uh, you know, extreme malignant narcissist who controlled every aspect of his followers' lives. And that certainly presented unique and challenging problems that I don't think anybody's ever faced before. And on the other hand, internally, we had FBI leadership in that particular incident that really wasn't well prepared or trained to make the difficult decisions and to support the negotiation process fully. So they engaged in a, in a contradiction uh, of, of both supporting aggressive tactics and, and calming negotiations at the same time, which is counterproductive. But all of this came to fruition, um, you know, three years later in 1996, the FBI having realized that the negotiation team had uh, assessed the situation correctly in Waco and then should have been given really the lead and the full support it required to resolve it. Uh, in, three years later in Montana, we had an 85-day situation uh, involving an anti-government group. And in that case, the new director of the FBI, Louis Free at the time, was completely supportive of negotiations and made it clear to everybody in the FBI chain of command that this is how it was going to be resolved. And sure enough, it was. It took 85 days. It was a, a long-term operation, but there was no loss of life, no reputational damage. And um, it really uh, showcased the value of uh, slow, steady, patient uh, negotiations. You know, I, my book is titled Stalling for Time. And um, that doesn't mean we waste time. It just means that when we slow things down and we engage in a thoughtful versus a hasty process, um, the chances of success are, are greatly increased. So I'd say those two, I mean, there's just so many situations I was involved in. And um, as I mentioned, mo most of them came out quite well. But I think those two in combination had the biggest impact on not only my career, but uh, the FBI negotiation program and law enforcement in general in the United States. Um, um, I, th I think it showed that disaster can quickly fall on someone's shoulders that doesn't take a thoughtful approach that doesn't prepare, doesn't train, doesn't uh, fully understand the capabilities of negotiators and how they work in concert with tactics. 
um, you know, how we engage as negotiators with our, our news media, uh, how we, um, you know, how we deal with uh, other outside stakeholders and people interested in, in the outcome. All that has to be carefully coordinated. And uh, that's what we do as negotiators. And appreciating that process uh, to a greater extent, it, it really was a good outcome from, from those events one after the other. Uh, thank you, Gary, for sharing uh, sharing these two examples. And uh, when we put together two statistics, the one that you've um, uh, that you've shared at the beginning of our chat, meaning over ninety some percent of um, of FBI engagements in crisis uh, crisis situations uh, ends with a successful uh, with a successful agreement, and divorce statistics. <laughs> Which in some countries are higher, in some countries, uh, some countries are lower. With Portugal, I think um, on the top of the ranking, with um, I think close to ninety percent of marriages in Portugal. Uh, Is that right? Yeah, oh, that's that's uh, that's a country that must need a lot of counseling. But uh... <laughs> I was just about to I was just about to put these two together. We see that. Uh, Probably a lot of uh, a lot of couples uh, would uh, would would love to find out more about the methods yes, uh, that you guys have developed uh, in terms of uh, um, um, coming up with solutions to crisis situations. And well, I would like, to, yeah. Well, let me give you a little background on it. And, you know, I, I re received my initial training as a negotiator in 1980, and the profession of negotiations had only been around for a few years. It was started by NYPD and very quickly copied and expanded by the FBI. And the approach when I was trained was essentially a quid pro quo bargaining approach. Uh, someone would hold hostages and, and in the process, uh, they would ask for food while they're holed up inside the bank. And the police would say, well, I can get your food, but you're going to have to let somebody out. My boss won't let me send the food in unless you let one of the hostages out. So that's really how we trained, how we practiced. That was the approach. It was valuable in that it, instead of just charging in and dictating surrender, we did open the dialogue and that led more often than not to good results. What I saw when I got in the negotiating field and became one of the FBI's full-time negotiators is that what we, and more importantly, police were doing around the world was more crisis intervention. That the individuals we were confronting weren't really engaged in a purposeful activity in order to gain something. They were manifesting their anger, their rage, their frustration, uh, an employee holding his boss at gunpoint because the boss fired him. Um, right. A man and a woman, you mentioned divorces, you know, a, a woman leaving the man and taking the kids and uh, the controlling male, in many cases, not, not wanting that to happen. A dispute between neighbors, on and on and on and on. So we were realizing that we needed a different set of skills. Those people really were not engaged in this activity that brought Tamar to our attention uh, to make a deal. They were looking you know, to express rage, anger, and frustration. So we borrowed from the counseling community, and we borrowed uh, skills developed originally by uh, Carl Rogers, you know, active listening skills. And that equipped uh, law enforcement negotiators for the first time with a set of identifiable uh, skills that you could practice and train and become competent in that allowed you the opportunity to develop a relationship with someone, to listen to their 
uh, rationale to listen to their point of view, neither agreeing or disagreeing, but letting them know that you hear and understand what they're saying. And it's a powerful, powerful tool that leads you to gaining influence. So that's the approach we took. When I took over the unit um, training program, I made a wholesale switch from the bargaining curriculum to uh, an active listening um, crisis intervention uh, model. And it's since spread around the world. And I think, I don't, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a competent law enforcement negotiator that isn't well-versed in these skill sets. When back in those days, uh, they were unheard of. Cops didn't learn that stuff. That's very interesting because, you know, <clears throat> uh, probably most of our, um, most of our listeners and viewers, uh, um, um, not all have not only read your uh, Stolen for Time, but also Chris Voss uh, uh, never split the difference, uh, uh, right? Where he uh, shares some of um, uh, some of his insights from his professional career. And by the way, guys, did you know that Gary was Chris's boss? <laughs> We've just uh, just found out about it, right? Chris was one of the one of the agents uh, assigned to my unit, a uh, great guy, uh, very competent, did a great job, and he's done real well in his life after the FBI, and I'm, I'm both happy for him and proud of him. <laughs> yeah, you have every reason to be, because, uh, and one of the things that he writes in his books is that, well, um, we don't really know why and how our methods work, but we have uh, experience and data which clearly show, and this, I think you shared also this uh, piece of evidence, over 90% of your engagements, of the en engagements in crisis situations end up with an agreement. So, um, and an agreement which is not, you know, splitting the difference or meeting somewhere in between, but where um, the law enforcement side gets what they all ultimately want, right? So the question is, you know, how how did it all start? How did you guys start developing your methodologies? Uh, what is the how did the process look like? How did you get this idea that well we need to move away from quick 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 pro quo uh, right? But we need to adapt something else. And how did you develop this something else right? The alternative methodology to, yeah. uh, to uh, hard bargaining. Well, we had a very small block of instruction um, in our curriculum that. Uh, my mentor, Fred Lansley, had put together uh, describing crisis, uh, crisis intervention skills and active listening skills. But it was something we didn't really teach. We didn't devote much time to. And then I befriended uh, Dr. Mike Webster, a Canadian psychologist who uh, became and still is a dear friend, who taught it in such a masterful way um, how someone can really connect with someone else by listening. And the people we were confronting in law enforcement were basically engaged in an activity where you might say they wanted to be heard. They wanted to be listened to. They wanted to be understood. And active listening skills seemed to me to be the ideal tools to use to, to let that person know. I, I hear what you're saying, Remy. I, I appreciate the fact you, you just told me that this happened. And because of this, you feel really um, you know, unrespected or, or you feel confused, you know, so we talk about, we restate um, uh, the, the, the content of, of what happened to you and we reflect the feelings. Those are the two key elements. And there's a lot of the skill sets that we use. And, and basically we practice being empathic. Um, and it's such a powerful tool in law enforcement because, um, the people we deal with often expect the police to be very authoritative, very commanding, 
Hey, Remy, this is Gary. I'm with the police. Now, you better do what I say. Or we're going to come in and get you. You know, we're not putting up with this nonsense. You know, when I should be saying, hey, Remy, this is Gary, and uh, I'm here to help you. And I know uh, I know you're going through a hard time today, and I, I sure hate to see you get hurt or anybody else. And, you know, I really want to learn more about what uh, what happened this morning, what what brought us to this point. It's softer. It's uh, It's more compassionate. It's more... Uh, open to uh, seeking information for you because the more information we gather about how you're feeling and what you're thinking, the better we're able to deal with it. And and we typically get to a point where all of a sudden, you know, someone like you using your name again, as my, as my example here, you Remy might say, Gary, I just don't know how to get out of this. Now that's a real light bulb that goes off for me because now you're soliciting my opinion. And I might say, Remy, well, you might think about, you know, not hurting that woman. And um, or if you kill your boss, Remy, you're certainly not going to get your job back. So it sounds like you have some really legitimate concerns and grievances. And maybe there's another way we can address those that uh, that you can get, uh, 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 you know, the response that, that you feel you need from the organization without resorting to this. Um, you know, that sort of thing. I have to earn the right to be of influence and to earn that right. You know, I, I have to, uh, I have to listen and engage and demonstrate. I don't just say, I hear you. I have to prove it. I prove it by repeating back, paraphrasing, summarizing, uh, identifying the emotions. So all of those approaches led me to create the behavioral change stairway model, which I put together as a way to illustrate to new negotiators that it was a process, um, you know, to get to the top step, which, by the way, after I retired, I, I changed the top step to cooperation. It, it just said behavioral change. Yes. But I changed it because, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to change somebody's behavior in the long term. It, it's not a, a, you know, psychotherapy. I'm trying to get their cooperation not to hurt themselves or anybody else. So to get that cooperation, I don't just start off and say, hey, Remy, I just got here. I'm the negotiator. I'm a good guy. So why don't you put your gun down and come down? You know, it's it just it doesn't work that quickly. I have to invest the time and effort into showing that I want to understand. Help me understand. I'm here not to make your day worse. So we go through the steps of that stairway. Uh, and I've had students say, well, you know, I'm stuck on step number three and I need to go to step number four. And I say to them, you're looking at this the wrong way. These these are not, you know, one follows two and two has to come before three. And then, oh, you jump to five. You got to go back to four. No, it's, it's just meant to illustrate the flow of a process to get to the point where we can gain cooperation, where we can be influential we have to earn that right and we have to invest that time in a non-hostage situation you know hostage situations are about bargaining and and if you give stuff without getting something back uh, that's probably not the best approach because then the person's just going to ask for more and more and more and more but 90 percent of what police do are not bargaining situations they're uh, expressive emotional situations and in those there might even be a, uh, an opportunity to demonstrate uh, by, by giving something. Now, some people say never, never do that. And I disagree wholeheartedly. For example, you know, I talk about uh, when I speak a, a situation where there's a guy trying to commit suicide on a, on a radio transmission tower. 
And, you know, it was going on for quite some time and the police called me up and asked for some advice. And I said, what, what does he ask for? And he said, he, he wants some cigarettes. And I said, well, did you give him cigarettes? And they said, well, no, what do we get for it? And I said, well, he's not there to bargain. You know, there's easier ways to get cigarettes than to climb up a radio tower. All you have to do is stand on the street corner and somebody walks by and you say, can I bum a cigarette? And, you know, 50% of the time or more, somebody's going to give you a cigarette if they have one. So you don't need to go through all this dramatic climbing up a radio. So we have to assume there's other issues, problems, concerns going on in this person's life. And that's what we have to address. And the biggest hurdle or obstacle for the police is to come across as non-threatening. And um, if say, yeah, yeah, I, I can get you a cigarette. Now we don't give him a whole carton of cigarettes, and, you know, but, but we make a small gesture that shows him, yeah, I'm not a bad guy. I want to help you out of this. And uh, you want a cigarette? I'll, I'll get you a cigarette. Now, later on, if he starts demanding uh, other things from you, you say, listen, you know, I, I really went out of my way and uh, convinced my boss that I could give you some cigarettes. And, you know, now you keep asking me for some additional things. And, you know, I'd, I'd like to see you help me to help you. I need you to do some things. You know, I need you to put that gun down or that knife down or let that person go, whatever it might be. So that's how the process works. And, um, you know, it, it's simple in many ways. It's not rocket science. Um, but if you as a negotiator can be likable um, and genuine and sincere and trustworthy, um, a lot of people look at negotiations as manipulation. And um, I, I don't see it that way. I, I see it as a, a total focus on relationship building. And uh, because I believe all human interaction is about the relationship. Uh, relationship is everything. Who you do business with, who you choose as a life partner um, where you decide to buy your car, you know, <laughs> there's a million decisions we all make in our lives. And a lot of them are based on our comfort in the relationship that we have with the person. I mean, uh, you know, I just made a major purchase um, in my life and I had uh, competing entities trying to sell me this particular product. And I ended up paying the higher price because I had a better feeling about the person that sold it to me, the, um, their dependability, the honesty of the information they provided to me, um, just an unknown factor of I liked them more. I liked the way they engaged with me, the way they spoke. And, you know, so it's not always I think in business negotiations too often it boils down to who's got the cheapest price. Uh, when in reality, it should be focused more on who do we have the best relationship with? I mean, who we want to develop a sustaining relationship with that is there for the long haul, that is mutually beneficial and reliable. And when you're buying my product and somewhere along the line, things don't go well, as inevitably they do, then Remy calls up Gary and says, Gary, we got this problem. My boss is not happy. And what you need to know is Gary says, I got it. I'm on this. I'll take care of it and know that I will take care of it. Now, what's the value of that? I, to me, there's a lot of value to that. And, and it's a bit of an unknown factor. Uh, but that's that's why a lot of people once they've. Well, when I became a consultant after I retired from the FBI, the organization I worked for always said, you want to be a farmer and not a hunter. 
a, a hunter is always going out looking for new business and that's fine. That's, that's an element of business. That's not unimportant, but the really successful salespeople uh, sustain a, a good client relationship and expand that business through the years by demonstrating these uh, characteristics of uh, approachability, uh, accessibility, uh, friendliness, genuineness, responsiveness, all those stuff. It, it keeps a relationship and then, and then you farm that business. I mean, which is a win-win for both sides. I couldn't agree more, Gary, as I was listening to you, it uh, pretty much uh, reflects the spirit of, um, of our negotiation competitions, uh, which we also run um, uh, together with a couple of uh, dedicated uh, professors and uh, faculty, negotiation faculty, where we uh, include both dimensions, right? I mean, substance, which because it is important at the end yeah, of the day. No, it's not, some, yeah, exactly. Somebody has to pay the bill, right? I mean, has to pay the lunch, uh, um, but also a relationship. Why? Because it's easier to give in or to give or to concede to people we like, people we uh, enjoy being around with, than to uh, to those who exert pressure to on, on us. And you have to realize, you know, if you're in sales or relationship, uh, client relationship management, you, you're not going to win every situation, you know. Uh, uh, and, and when I was consulting, there would be times where my company's price was higher and ultimately the decision was being made not even by the person I was dealing with, but by some finance person says, well, that's all well and good. You're, you've got a good relationship with Gary, but these guys are X number of dollars cheaper. So we're going with them. And instead of getting angry or frustrated, you have to know that a lot of times if someone's selling a product at a cut rate uh, a price, there may be problems with that. And if there's problems with that, you want them to remember that, well, you know, Uh, I had a good relationship with, with Gary, you know, and, and I might say, listen, I, I wish you luck with, I'm sorry we didn't win this particular transaction, but, um, and I hope it works out for you. But if it doesn't, if, if the service they're providing is not up to the standard that you want, um, I hope you'll remember us and come back and give us another opportunity to work with you. Excuse me. Oh, there's no sense burning that bridge. I mean, you might as well go ahead and, uh, you know, leave everything on a good note. And um, Absolutely. I've, I've seen some of those come back to be quite lucrative. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, Gary, we're getting a whole bunch of questions uh, sure. uh, right now, which I will, uh, I will, <clears throat> I will blend in as we're, uh, as we're going through our questions, but let us maybe tackle uh, for, for a moment, the behavioral change stairway model that you, uh, that you developed. We talked a little bit about uh, active listening as a, as an entry gate, right? This is how we come, how we start demonstrating that we care, right? So um, there are, there is, there are two, uh, the, the two following steps in that model or elements of that model or whatever, however, uh, however we want to, uh, whatever we want to call them um, are empathy and rapport building. Let's tackle them one by one because I think our our viewers and listeners would love to understand a little bit more, you know, how to become more empathic yes and how to be how to build once we have become or demonstrated our, our empathy how to let's say close uh, how to how to build ties uh, how to build relationships uh, on top of that yeah yeah i mean the active listening skills are, are 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 the tools that we use to gather the information as you gather the information and begin to better understand what is uh, motivating the individual 
we have to respond in an empathic way. Empathy is different from sympathy. Sympathy is your dog died. I feel sorry for you. Um, empathy is, man, I understand that you were so close to that pet and losing that pet um, has just had a really, really big impact on you. And it's, uh, it's really affected your life. I can see it, you know, uh, you know, I, I am saying that I understand how you feel. Now we don't make stuff up, you know, uh, let's say somebody's talked to you and they've had a child die. If, if you haven't had a child die, don't, don't fake that. But maybe you did. Uh, or maybe you had someone close to you and say, you know, um, I, uh, I've never experienced just what you have, but I, I've known loss in my life and, and I know how devastating that can be. That's empathy. It's understanding and it's appreciating and acknowledging. So that's a key element to get us further along in the relationship. That can lead us to rapport where we find some common areas of interest or concern. Uh, you know, I talk about the first chapter of my book, um, you know, it was a very difficult situation. And, and uh, while we were in the midst of negotiating this difficult situation, I decided to take us away from the scene mentally and ask this guy about something that he was very knowledgeable in. And this was camping in, in, in the woods of New England where he lived. And, and I said, listen, I want to take my children camping there this summer. And uh, do you have any ideas or any tips? What this did, this journey, this discussion took us away from the crisis at hand and allowed us to talk about something that we had a common interest in so we could build that rapport. And that's good stuff, you know. Um, and, and when you talk to somebody long enough, maybe you're both fans of the same sporting club or you're, you're both into fishing or hiking or uh, painting, you know, um, whatever it might be. And, you know, all of these things can help. I always tell classes, I say, you know, when you and your significant other go to a, a social function at a party, you know, and one of you is in one room and one of you is in the other room all night long. And you meet at the end of the night and uh, how was the evening? And you say, I just met this most fascinating person. All of us guys were talking in the kitchen and this new neighbor was there. And what an interesting background. This person really did the most interesting job and had the most interesting experiences. And, you know, we ought to invite uh, him and his wife over to our house for dinner. You know, it. It's sometimes hard to define what it was that you liked about them, but you did. Uh, you know, and I always say that uh, in the negotiations, we always used to get in the habit of asking people, what did we say that made you come out? Because we want to learn. And surprisingly, the answer was almost always the same. And it's like, I don't remember what you said, but I like the way you said it. And if you think about that, boy, that's more powerful than any strategic planning, more powerful than any uh, deal making, who speaks first, who offers first, how do you counter? All that stuff's great. All that stuff is necessary, but it really boils down to: Are you likable? You know, are, are you uh, are you engaging with somebody in a way that um, they find pleasurable, interesting, appropriate, uh, nurturing, whatever? Uh, and, and that's that's the key to it all. It's it's not a secret sauce. It's it's pretty plain, down-to-earth uh, human relationship. <laughs> Thank you, Gary, for sharing this. I call it the panda, uh, coming across as a panda because everybody loves uh, loves pandas. Pandas are no threat, right? Pandas are cute. Uh, pandas, uh, but they are strong. 
they are strong animals, yeah. right? They are bears. Yeah. Uh, so um, I, I use this analogy in the, in, in my teaching. If there are any uh, any students, um, my former students listening to us right now, um, um, uh, big hello to you guys out there. Um, yes. So um, let us uh, try to answer a few questions yeah. from the audience. Uh, we're I getting more up here now. Yes, Derek. Derek is uh, based in Cape Town. He's a negotiation consultant. Uh, uh, he's asking about, uh, for those of you guys who will listen to us uh, later on, um, Gary mentioned an 85-day-long uh, negotiation. Um, Derek says he's at uh, difficulties with 55 hours nonstop. Uh, how do you maintain energy, patience, and mental wellness over such a long period, Gary? What do you think? Well, it can be challenging, but the the simple answer is it's a team event. Um, I think too often in business, and certainly reflected on television and the movies in the law enforcement context, it's down to one person. Um, you know, in 85 days, we have uh, two 12-hour shifts of six, seven, eight negotiators. And, um, you know, the team is, is uh, very supportive. We don't want to... Uh, put one negotiator's mental capacity up against one bad guy's. We want to use the leverage of our entire team to assess what they're saying, to come up with strategy recommendations, so forth and so on. You know, we'll use team to interview uh, family, friends, and contacts who aren't even at the scene. We'll talk to uh, hostages or victims who've been released. You know, there's a number of, uh, of functions that can be performed in a team context as negotiations. And that's how we do it. That's how you can sustain uh, an 85-day siege, which is certainly not easy. Uh, I mean, it did 120 days in Peru for the – so Waco was 51, uh, Montana was 85, and then we did 120 when I was in Peru for the Japanese ambassador's residence. I mean, that's a significant amount of time. So you have to operate in a team context. Um, the idea is not for you to get worn out, burned out, um, incapacitated by fatigue, um, I never understood why medical schools uh, train residents the way they do. You know, they have to sleep in the hospital, work 20-hour shifts and stuff like that. I want my doctor well-rested and, um, you know, uh, fully engaged in trying to deal with my problem. I don't want some guy that's about to burn out because, uh, you know, for some reason they feel like you got to work these guys to the to the death. I, I that never made any sense to me. So I'm not sure if that answered Derek's question, but I think Derek in a, in a complex situation, I think you're best to operate in the context of a team. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think, Gary, for, <clears throat> for the behavioral, uh, behavioral change uh, stairway model, are there any prerequisites on uh, either of the sides, on the sides of the negotiator? Uh, do they work better or worse given that a negotiator on one or the other side um, has certain individual characteristics or doesn't have other characteristics. Um, did, did you guys uh, had a closer? Did you guys have you guys ever had a closer look at which constellations, uh, um, let's say, behavioral changes um, the model look works better, and in which constellations it works, uh, uh, it works it works a little bit worse. No, it's a pretty universal model, but what, what you're talking about, I mean, we didn't have the choice of, um, we had to negotiate whoever were, was there on the other side of, <laughs> of the conflict, and usually a person, and, um, you know, we could direct all our efforts on creating a relationship where we could influence that person. Uh, I've also worked quite a few prison rides, three or four of them, that, you know, last six, seven, eight days, 
that's far more challenging because you might actually be dealing with multiple uh, inmates. So what we try to do in those situations is identify the individuals who are the most reasonable uh, and the most open to relationship building. And we try to promote things. For example, if we were going to make a concession, we would make it to the person who we're trying to promote as a leader so he can show his followers, you know, when I'm in charge talking to the FBI, I'm able to get things done. When this angry, mad, crazy person talks to him, nothing gets done. So there's things like that that we we try to do to influence it. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I don't know that I would overlay the stairway with a personality type. Uh, I, I know that they're pretty rare, uh, fortunately, but someone who's extremely psychotic and hears voices or, or uh, sounds or uh, smells things that aren't in fact there, you know, th- that makes rapport building very challenging. There's no question about it. But in those, you really focus on being non-threatening and understanding and not not feeding into any paranoia that they're they're probably already feeling. So it's tough. Those are very challenging ones. Let's tackle another one. Alexander, um, what strategies can negotiators employ to maintain empathy without compromising their position or objectives? Well, I think you can you can be firm uh, and, and and you know without losing your cool. For example, you know, um, you can be empathic without making a major concession. You, you know, there's all kind of perpetrators we deal with that say, I, I, I want that getaway car. I want that uh, bag of money or whatever it is. And you say, you know, I, I, I appreciate that. I hear what you're saying. And it sounds to me like that's very important to you, but you know, I've talked to my boss and, um, he's just not willing to, to let that happen right now. And, um, let's see if we can find some other way to help, uh, get this resolved that you know, there's things I can do and there's things I can't do. I, I can't send you in another gun. You can, you know, certainly you're asking for that, but it's just something I can't do. You know, so I, I just, instead of saying that ain't happening, dude, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I think you would agree that my way of presenting it as I just illustrated prior was, uh, you know, a little softer and, and, and less likely to evoke a strong response doesn't mean it won't evoke a response, but but it's less likely. Um, Gary, um, um, when you think about um, this, um, um, how do I say, um, I have difficulties putting uh, into, uh, into words, but uh, these intangible, convincing, but important characteristics of a negotiator, right? Like you guys at the end, uh, at the end of a crisis situations uh, asked uh, for the reasons um, uh, to come out right uh, and uh, the answers were intangible i don't know what you said but how you said well what is in the how is it the voice the tonality the speed is it the genuinity so how can we reverse engineer that to become more likable or more uh, influence influencing sort of to strengthen our uh, our ability to influence others That's a great question. I think we start with self-control. I mean, the, the first um, thing you do or the attribute that we look for uh, in recruiting someone to be a negotiator is someone who can uh, maintain their cool in a stressful situation. You know, I always like the, the partial quote from uh, the author Rudyard Kipling. You know, if you keep your head about you and all else are losing theirs. <laughs> Those are the attributes of someone that makes a good negotiator. Um, you know, that person in, in your office, in your 
sports team, whatever it is, that always seems to be level-headed and looks at things in a, in a calmer way. I'm not saying emotion is all a bad thing. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm saying is those who can control their emotions, uh, in my experience, tend to be more successful in creating that relationship that leads to influence. So if you're being insulted, if you're being frustrated, if you're being lied to, and all of those things happen quite quite normally and expectedly in, in a negotiation situation, you can't let it uh, get the better of you. And, you know, I mentioned Waco earlier, and that's the biggest problem we had because David Koresh, the, the cult leader we were dealing with, was a very manipulative, challenging person. And he would often say he was going to do something and then he wouldn't do it. Now, as a negotiator, as a negotiation team, that didn't come as a complete surprise. We, you know, it's, it's not the first time someone has lied to us or misrepresented, not followed through. So we expect that and we don't overreact to it. We would have come back to it and said, you know, David, I'm, I'm trying to work for you here. And I brought in that milk that you wanted and you told me you were going to do something and you haven't done it. And it's really making me look bad with the boss. Well, in Waco, when those sorts of things would happen, the boss would take it very personally and then would order some very aggressive uh, activity that really further undercut the negotiations, didn't allow us to lay a guilt trip on Koresh for not doing what he said. Instead, it gave him now an excuse to say, well, yeah, I didn't give it to you, but look what you guys did, you know, and that that was not helpful at all. Mm -hmm. Um, Gary, we have we have another one. This uh, this one uh, from Angel in uh, in uh, Venezuela, if I remember correctly. Is it realistic to worry that negotiating in certain situations will set a precedent um, and encourage others to follow these behaviors or build more of these situations? So, shall we negotiate with terrorists? Yes or no? Absolutely, we we should and we have and we will. Uh, if a plane full of terrorists landed at uh, you know, Heathrow Airport tonight, uh, I'll use an international venue, um, and they're threatening to kill people on the plane, I guarantee you Scotland Yard is going to open up a dialogue and shame on them if they didn't. That doesn't mean they're going to uh, acquiesce. Uh, you know, negotiations does not mean capitulation. It, it doesn't mean you're giving in to whatever demand they have. It's opening a dialogue to help uh, uh, control the situation to keep it from, from uh, becoming violent. Um, I don't see anything wrong with that. Uh, U.S. policy is often, and other countries follow it, you know, we won't negotiate with terrorists. Well, what that really means is we won't make substantive concessions. If those same hijackers on the plane wanted prisoners released or they wanted $100 million or they wanted, you know, uh, U.S. military to pull out of a base overseas, those are things that you couldn't really do because then you do reward and encourage bad behavior. But talking to them, trading a food for, a hostage for food, food is not a substantive demand. You know, it's, it's not. So people need to understand and distinguish the difference. I worked a lot of kidnappings overseas. I worked 120 of them during my career of American citizens. And there were some in the government that said, we can't, discuss, we can't talk to these guys. We're only going to encourage them to take more hostages. And I said, well, listen, first of all, Americans are a teeny tiny percent of the number of hostages taken. And 
they tend to get money for these from everybody else. We can say we're not going to talk to you, and then they'll just kill the hostage, and that's really not accomplished much. And we can say that we're never going to pay you, so therefore don't take any hostages that are American. That doesn't work either. They don't care what your policy is. They hold somebody, and they said somebody's going to pay something for them, and if they don't, we'll kill them. So to me, the key is really um, getting the hostages safely out and then going after the bad guys. When I always tell a story, when I was a young FBI agent, we worked kidnaps for ransom in the United States fairly frequently. And we almost eliminated that crime. It's a very rare crime in the Western world now because the authorities are competent. You know, the the bad guy's got to get the money. And when he gets the money, he's vulnerable to law enforcement surveillance and arrest and apprehension and prosecution. And uh, so therefore, you know, smart criminals have, have moved to another specialty within their, uh, their life of crime. Um, so that's, that, that's all, all well and good. But the way we stopped it was prosecuting, not refusing uh, people uh, the right to pay a ransom. You know, we would say, let us uh, help you deliver the ransom. So we enhance our chances of not only securing the safe release of the victim, but getting the bad guys. So that's the approach I, I always believe in. And I try to think, well, what would you do if it was your family member? But going back to the larger question from Mount Hill, I think um, I, I, I believe dialogue is, is always useful. Even your arch enemy, you know, I, 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 I suspect in some fashion, directly or indirectly, uh, Israel's talking with uh, Hamas now. And they should be. Uh, is the outcome optimistic? You know, are, are the parties far apart and maybe uh, highly unlikely to achieve uh, an equitable resolution? Probably, but they should nonetheless be trying. I see no downside to doing that. Some people think that makes you look weak. I, I don't agree with that at all. Yes, we can always say no at the end, right? I mean, um, <clears throat> yeah. uh, even, if, even if we continue, uh, continue our dialogue. Right. Uh, was David Koresh the, 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 the hardest negotiator in your career or was there, uh, were there others uh, that, would you, that you well, want to I, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, um, the most dangerous ones for me are, uh, I wouldn't say David Koresh was the most dangerous. He was the most unusual and atypical, but the ones that are the most frightening are people who are filled with rage, who are angry at a person they're holding. They have a grievance, uh, an employer who's going to kill his boss, uh, a husband who's going to kill his wife or girlfriend. You know, again, I mentioned it earlier, they don't really need or want anything from us. They're just expressing um, a deep sense of hurt. You know, they feel cheated or unappreciated or they feel they've been the victims in the relationship. And it's very hard uh, for us to achieve success with those people um, when they really don't want to talk to us. They don't feel they need us. They would. The demand we're most likely to hear is go away. Even in those, we have a very high success rate, but they're real tough and it takes a lot of work. So, you know, I, I would say uh, th those are the toughest ones for me. Thank you, Gary. We have a, we have a question also from Poland. Uh, good evening, gentlemen. Um, does uh, B BCSM, which means behavioral change uh, stairway model that Gary developed, uh, have, does it have any drawbacks? Something that we should be aware of while using the model? and a little panda at the end. Well, having developed it, I have to say, no, it's perfect. It, uh, 
<laughs> I mean, I think the drawback again is if someone takes it too literally as a, a, a cookbook recipe, I've got to follow these steps. It just, again, uh, I put it together to show that there is a process. And, and if you accept the fact that um, to get from the letter A to the letter Z, the last letter of the alphabet, you know, it, it's, it's, it takes time and it takes some patience and we have to methodically work our way to uh, having a good positive relationship that, you know, works to our benefit and helps saves lives. So again, I think the drawback would be somebody trying to use it as a, a very uh, strict template. Great. Uh, so we've answered lots of questions. I have two more before um, before we call it the day. One, uh, you're such a walking treasure of knowledge and experience in the area of, you know, uh, of uh, negotiation, Gary. Uh, if you were to extract everything that you know and you've experienced uh, in this in this field into one uh, one key recommendation that you could share with aspiring negotiators, and yeah? what would it be? Well, in a sense, it's to be yourself. Uh, I, I think negotiators um, run into problems when they try to be something that they're not, when they try to uh, uh, present an affect or a style or an approach. They try to be more authoritative than they are. They try to be... Uh, just something that is not their natural self. I, I, I always uh, tell audiences that if you can imagine your best friend since you were a young man uh, is in a crisis and he lives far away from you. When he calls you in the middle of the night and says, I've lost my job and my wife's leaving me, you're probably not going to say, ah, this is an inconvenient hour. Let's talk uh, tomorrow when I get to work. No, you're going to, get up and grab some coffee and talk to your friend all night long and help them deal with whatever crisis they're going through. If you can do that with a stranger, uh, if, if, and I don't mean just strictly in the crisis sense, if you can come across as that same kind of genuinely interested person in a client relationship, I think you will be successful. There are gurus out there in negotiation that will say, always do this and always get that result. I, I, I'm not that good. I, I can't promise you anything. I can just say that if you take this thoughtful approach of being a good listener and demonstrating your empathy and your genuineness, that's the pathway to success most of the time. It doesn't guarantee success, but that is the pathway that is likely to bring you to the point where you want to be. So do that. Work on just being comfortable instead of talking to this. I'm all upset. I got this big negotiation tomorrow. I got to, I'm all stressed out about it. What do I say? How do I say it? If you start to think about those things too much, you get performance anxiety and, and you come across as not being yourself, not being genuine, not being sincere. And that's exactly the opposite of what you want to do. So I'm not sure if that translates into a, a coherent tip, but there it is for what it's worth. Oh, yes, it does. And it's uh, it's very valuable. Um, let's try to uh, zoom out a little bit. Uh, Tim is asking about your views on relationship building on the on the large scale of a country, um, um, the U.S. And so he says, what do you think would help 
the two parts of divided America uh, come back together and work functionally? Boy, that's a tough one, Tim. And I, I wish I had some clear advice. Uh, he's obviously talking about the very divided political situation in America today, which has driven family members apart, has driven neighbors apart. It's uh, it's unlike anything I've seen in in my 73 years uh, on this planet. And uh, I just think we have to be more open to hearing others' points of view. And sometimes that's very difficult because sometimes the viewpoint of someone else may be based on very erroneous information. Um, there, there's so much propaganda perpetrated in some media circles uh, these days that it's it's hard for people to um, uh, to be, uh, I don't know, open uh, to, to other ideas and thoughts. Um, the, the language that I've begun to hear that bothers me the most is not unlike it was in Germany, you know, before the war. And that's, you know, Hitler sort of used Jews as, as sort of a scapegoat and, and blamed them for all sorts of things. And I see that on the political side now, too. Just because somebody is in a different political party doesn't mean they, they hate our country or they're bad people or they don't want to do good things. Yet that's how it's portrayed uh, by some who want to manipulate others to uh, to support them because if you don't support me, you're going to deal with these terrible people who hate everything we're trying to do. And I just think that's that's nonsense. I'm not a member of either political party, and I know good people on both sides of the equation, and I know very bad people on both sides of the equation. So, you know, you, you have to do your best to kind of bridge the gap and um, – you know, and try to get people to be more open-minded. I wish I had a, a, a clear solution on that, Tim. I, I don't. Um, uh, Bob Bourdon um, and I, we spoke a couple of months ago um, on, on, on this show about um, something that he calls conflict resilience. As uh, We as negotiation trainers and professors, we have um, a tendency to uh, overestimate um, the possibility of reaching a deal, right? Yeah. Uh, and in very often, and you know, between neighbors and within families, right? Like you mentioned, there are indivisible differences, yes, irreconcilable differences. And regardless of uh, how many negotiation courses or trainings uh, we ultimately do, we wouldn't be able to uh, bring these people together, and they still have to coexist. As they you know, the, the analogy I use. Uh... When you really break it down, the thing that law enforcement, and I'm not just talking about the FBI, police in general, way more with police, the thing that they deal with more than anything else are suicides. Um, that is the, the crisis call that is most likely uh, for a negotiation team to respond to. Now, you can do everything right. You can use the active listening skills and climb up the stairway and have a supportive team and a supportive boss and do everything the right way and somebody may kill themselves anyway. You know, so I always tell negotiators, listen, go into this, uh, giving this your very best effort to try to help this person live. But in that process, know that you do not control them. You can control yourself and how you uh, behave and what you do, but you don't control them. You try to influence you're going to be successful most of the time. But if this person decides that at the end of the day, they want to die more than they want to live, nothing you say may be able to prevent that. And the fact that they harm themselves is not your fault. Don't own that problem. 
Yet I've seen many negotiators uh, quite uh, damaged psychologically because they say, you know, if it's a bad old bank robber and he kills somebody, we know who to blame. But if it's some nice lady, middle-aged lady that kills herself because her husband left her, you know, and you say, well, I should have been able to reach out to her. I should have been able to uh, hook up with her in, in a way that helped her sustain her life. And she, she realized she had much to live for and so forth. But it wasn't your failure. So, and that's, we mentioned earlier the team, and that's where a team comes in very importantly too. We rise and fall as a negotiation team. You know, we may collectively decide this is the approach we're going to take. And if it works, we all share the, the success. And if it doesn't work, we all share the burden of uh, dealing with a situation that ended tragically. And then unfortunately, unlike business and law enforcement, sometimes they end quite tragically. So we have to be supportive of each other. But uh, yeah, I think those are the, the toughest ones. And know that when you go into a business negotiation, you're going to give it your best. You're prepared. You've done your homework. Uh, at the end of the day, you're not going to win them all. And it's not because you screwed up. It's because there are issues and factors going on. This person may have met with you because they were told they had to meet with so many other salespeople. The decision may have been made before you even walked in the door. You know, somebody else was, knows somebody or whatever it is. We've all seen those kind of things. So don't be too hard on yourselves. Hey, we lost this deal, but I did the very best I could. My team and I prepared. I, I think we, uh, I would do it the same way. Or if you think you really messed up, then we learn from that. The next time we make an adjustment. But uh, don't be too hard on yourselves. Thank you, uh, thank you, Gary, for this uh, piece of advice. Uh, um, now let's uh, we're neatly, uh, slowly need to wrap uh, wrap it up. So, guys, we won't be able to answer all your questions. I'm so sorry, we got so many. Uh, um, but um, still, I would like to um, uh, get to know uh, Gary your opinion about greatness in negotiation. This is my last question to all my guests, uh, um, and that is: um, Is there anyone you look up to in terms of? contemporary or historical negotiators uh, uh, that um, has impressed you or have impressed you uh, a lot, uh, someone that you've learned from, um, anyone you would call a great negotiator? Well, there's probably a lot, but, um, you know, I think historically, I think of uh, our president, Abraham Lincoln, during the American Civil War, who, number one, served at you know, one of the most challenging times in the history of, of my country and um, uh, who was highly unpopular, um, uh, you know, in some circles and people hated him and ended up he was assassinated. But he gathered around him a diverse team in his presidential cabinet and he was open and receptive to different ideas. He sought that out an extremely wise man, a thoughtful man, um, that he didn't just want praise and, you know, a sycophantic uh, support. He wanted people to tell him sometimes the things he didn't want to hear and to take on the problems that, you know, really were not easily solved. And, and I think I admire him about that. And he achieved great things. And, um, you know, he kept our nation together and had he not been that right man at the right time in history, you know, maybe the United States would have evolved into two separate countries. It's hard to say. So if you talk about somebody who had to negotiate 
with the South. He had to negotiate with his generals. He had to negotiate with the political front. I, I think he was uh, pretty pretty amazing and uh, quite quite a, a, a figure of respect. And that's the end of our today's episode. Thank you, Gary, so much for sharing uh, sharing your knowledge, your experience, your wisdom with us. It's uh, it's been uh, delightful uh, to have listened to you and learned from you. Uh, fun fact: I don't know if you uh, if you have caught that uh, in the second uh, second part. I think it was the sequel to the original, very popular movie called Inside Job or Insider Job. Uh, the name of the chief negotiator is. Remy. <laughs> so <laughs> so he is the, yes, he's the FBI negotiator, uh, the, uh, the bank ro uh, robbery. There's a lot of uh, uh, turns and twists into the plot, a plot, which I will not reveal here and not spoil the fun of watching it. But uh, it's been a delight, Gary, to have you here on our show. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. And I'm sorry we, we couldn't get to more questions uh, maybe in the future. But um, uh, you know, I, I hope um, I have a fairly simple approach to dealing with these things just be genuine be yourself and um you know you'll you'll succeed you'll succeed thank you so much gary all the best thank you